Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us on this 9th of February, or whenever you happen to be listening on any of the various platforms where this, uh, this program is available. Um, last week, we talked about uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary and her plan for Catholics in you know, the Church in the modern world, for Catholics in the United States of America, and also about her special role in salvation. And uh, later on today, we're going to talk a little bit more about the teaching of the Church regarding Mary as co-redemptrix, and also the, uh, the modern resistance to that doctrine. Now, last week I was so busy celebrating the, uh, the feast, you know, uh, celebrating Mary's role as co-redemptrix, which is so powerfully illustrated by the Feast of the Presentation of the Child Jesus, which is also known as the uh, Feast of the Purification of Mary and Candlemas. Uh, so anyway, I, w- I was so busy, so focused on that, I wasn't paying attention to what was coming out of the Vatican. I was probably for the best. Um, but particularly, I'm talking about some comments from uh, Pope Francis on uh, resisting restoration in the Church, uh, which is one of the promises that Our Lady made, uh, Our Lady of Good Success um, made, and the 2nd of February is her feast day, and she said there would be a marvelous restoration in the Church. Um, Pope apparently doesn't want to see that happening. And also one of his most powerful Jesuit cardinals called an immemorial teaching of the Church wrong, Right, flat out, just said it was wrong. So more on that later. But uh, just in time to make such a biz- you know make sense out of such a, a bizarre situation comes uh, the readings for this past Sunday in the extraordinary form. This is from uh, the Mass in the extraordinary form for the fifth Sunday after Epiphany, and we're going to start with the the Epistle, which is about the char- characteristics of life in common from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, and reading, as has become our new custom here, from the New Catholic Bible translation. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bear with one another, and forgive one another if anyone has reason to be offended with another. You must forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. Over all these put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts, because it was for this that you were called together in one body. Always be thankful. Let the word of Christ with all its richness dwell in you. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul calls charity the bond of perfection because it combines all of the virtues uh, of which perfection consists. So wherever, uh, whoever, I should say, loves God and his neighbor practices in a perfect manner all of the virtues, you know, humility, mercy, patience, and so forth. Uh, And St. Paul would have all Christians to be rich in the Word of God, that is to say, well-instructed in his Word, so that it it may console and strengthen us in all our adversities. You know, in in St. Paul's day, teaching was primarily oral, you know, it was transmitted orally. But the Word also would include the Old Testament and, uh, and the New Testament as well, especially for us today. You know, Paul didn't know his letters were going to become 
a part of sacred scripture, but that is, in fact, what happened. And what does he say? He says, to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs or canticles to God. You know, and the hymns, there are many ancient Christian hymns and canticles um, that are, you know, in the letters of St. Paul that set forth these, you know, very important Christian doctrines and are preserved for us, you know, only in his letters. So, you know, in, in Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and even First uh, Timothy, he quotes, you know, these ancient hymns. And he may, in fact, have been um, the composer or the author of some of these hymns. So, you know, instruction in the Word of God is attained by the private reading of Scripture, of course, but primarily through the Holy Mass, through the proclamation of Scripture, and through praying the Liturgy of the Hours, where Christians are edified by Scripture and by psalms and canticles and hymns. And then finally, the Apostle admonishes us that whatever you do in word or deed, whether it is to eat or drink or, or sleep, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, in his spirit and according to his will, thereby honoring, praising, and most especially giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, now for the gospel on the, for the fifth Sunday after Epiphany, like I say, helping us to make sense of the bizarre situation in the church today, the parable of the weeds and the wheat, which is from Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. He then proposed another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was asleep, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and ripened, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and asked, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, One of my enemies has done this. The servants then asked him, Do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? He replied, No, because in gathering the weeds you might uproot the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat into my barn. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, the parable of the weeds and the wheat is particular to Matthew. And through it, Jesus teaches that the last judgment is to be awaited with patience. Okay, The last judgment, that's the, uh, the separation of the good and the wicked, of which uh, a harvest is a common biblical metaphor. And, and thankfully, you don't have to take my word for it, because <laughs> this is one of those parables wherein our Lord himself gives the explanation. It's in Matthew 13, verses 37 through 43. He says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all who cause sin and all whose deeds are evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
So the kingdom of heaven, quite naturally, is, is uh, the church of God. It's the congregation of the faithful upon earth. So in other words, the Catholic church. Jesus tells us that the weeds and wheat are good and bad people, but they can also represent the word of God, say, versus uh, false doctrines and, and principles. The parable begins by saying that the weeds were sown while everyone was asleep, and the sleeping servants would be those secular and especially ecclesiastical superiors who neglect their obligations, the obligations of their office, which is to watch over the flock, right? So those who fail to watch over the flock, those who fail to punish the guilty. You know, when there's no consequence for disobedience, uh, and disobedience especially to doctrine or spreading heresy, it becomes a simple matter for the devil to corrupt the congregation uh, through false doctrine and by the mockery of religion or the mockery of tradition, by bad example, by immoral uh, books and media. Also, the weeds can represent those Christians who cease to use the means of salvation. Okay, so uh, the Catholics that, the majority of Catholics that don't go to Sunday Mass regularly, for example, or, you know, who don't receive the sacraments, who uh, are failing to pray or to hear the Word of God and not practicing the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. And, and someone might ask, why is it that God himself, you know, why doesn't he take it upon himself to gather up the wicked and destroy them? Well, first, on account of his long-suffering and his patience toward the sinner. He, he, you know, he wants to give every opportunity of doing penance and turning back to him. You know, it says in, in the Scripture that God desires that all should be saved. So he's, you know, giving them that opportunity. And it's also out of love for the just and for the righteous. You know, if you think about it for a minute... Uh, if, if God were to exterminate the wicked, then the just would lose the opportunity of uh, exercising many virtues, patience, uh, meekness, mercy, purity, uh, perseverance, etc. You know, w- w- without the opportunity to practice those virtues, how would we grow in holiness? So both the wicked and the just have their part to play in the big picture. You know, we trust that the, the toy company that manufactures puzzles will put all the pieces into the box. Right? So why not trust that God will do the same for our lives, for, for, for the big picture of the church and the world? You know, Father John Law said, The highest purpose of all created things is to give glory to God. The glory of God consists in the revelation of his perfections to his rational creatures. By giving glory to God, men lay the foundation of their own happiness. If they fail to do this, then God is glorified by the exercise of his justice toward them. So at the end of all things, the weeds will be collected and burned in the fire, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's no nonsense. Okay, coming back in just a minute with lots more here on No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Before the break, we were talking about the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And in the Dewey Reims translation of the Bible, the uh, word weeds is rendered as cockle. And that's an archaic word for a certain type of weed, uh, darnel, which uh, looks just like wheat until the grain appears. So clearly... It behooves the bishops to be especially watchful 
for errors that are slyly mixed in with the truth, you know, like a drop of poison in a cup of wine. You know, and I mentioned that, that in the parable, these sleeping servants who allowed the enemy to sow the weeds in the field represent ecclesiastical superiors who neglect the obligations of their office, who, who fail to watch over their flock, and perhaps especially who fail to punish those who spread error in the church, like weeds among the wheat. It's actually a failure in justice to not correct someone who's in error. Now, on February the 2nd, right, on the Feast of the Presentation, when I was uh, um, spending our time here on this program talking about Mary as co-redemptrix and her promise uh, uh, of the marvelous restoration of the Church in, in this our day, Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich, a Jesuit who leads the Pan-European Catholic Bishops' Conference, called for a change in the Church's teaching on homosexuality. He stated that he considered the Church's assessment of homosexual relations, uh, homosexual relationships as sinful, quote, to be wrong, unquote. So I guess from now on, uh, you know, between him and Father Martin, we should call the homosexual movement uh, LGBTQSJ. Uh, in any case, Cardinal Hollerich said, I believe that the sociological, scientific foundation of this teaching is no longer correct. And so he said it was time for a fundamental revision of church teaching and suggested that the way that Pope Francis has spoken about homosexuality in the past um, would give him, you know, uh, you know, could lead to a change in the doctrine. Um, okay, no. Uh, for one thing, the church's moral teaching is not based on sociological or psychological grounds but on the natural law and divine revelation. Sociology and psychology are soft sciences that are barely more than a century old, but the Church's teaching on human sexuality comes from the infallible and immutable, i.e. unchangeable, Word of God. You know, if scientific and, and um, social attitudes are to determine the doctrines of the Church, then the Bible and tradition are meaningless. Quite literally, nothing is sacred. See, and, and that's the point, that Cardinal Hollerich's remarks are not mere error, but heresy, because he's calling divine revelation itself into question. Now, what do you think? Is uh, Pope Francis going to punish him? Remove him from the presidency of the Commission of the Bishops' Conference of the European Union, perhaps? Will he even offer a single word of correction? I wouldn't hold my breath. See, and that's the problem here. It's qui tacit consentire videtur. That is the axiom in law, silence betokens consent. So if Francis does not speak up, we must assume that he agrees with Cardinal Hollerich. You know, and within the case with Father Martin, who has made his, his uh, you know, pro-homosexual agenda very clear, he was promoted by uh, the Holy Father. So not punishing disobedience is bad enough, but, it, but it's certainly worse to reward it instead. And, and that was a topic of a recent article last month in uh, the Catholic World Report from Father Peter Stravinskis called Disobey and You'll Get Your Way. Uh, his article uh, talks about such things as communion in the hand and altar girls and, and, and other things that um, all started in disobedience Okay, but wound up enshrined in church law. Disobey and you'll get your way, he says. And then he brings up Traditionis Custodis, right? Uh, Pope Francis's modo proprio restricting and in many cases forbidding the traditional Latin Mass. 
as well as uh, Archbishop Roach's document, Archbishop Roach from the, the Congregation of Doctrine uh, uh, of Worship and the Divine Sacraments. Uh, yeah, the Congregation of Worship and the Sacraments. And, uh, of course, Cardinal Supich's uh, draconian implementation of the motu proprio in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Brings these up specifically. There are more. But, but he's talking about this blatant attack on the traditional Latin Mass and, and the Catholic priests and laity who both celebrate and assist at that Mass. And Father Stravinskis asks... Um, what makes Pope Francis and Archbishop Roach and Cardinal Supich think that their policies will be obeyed? And he said, the answer, he says, is that they've made the presumption based on the theological convictions of conservative and traditional Catholics. He says they assume they will be obeyed because conservative or traditional Catholics, by their very nature, are given to obey their superiors in the church. And he's got a point. However, he says, conservatives are not ahistorical. They have witnessed for more than half a century that liberals, quote-unquote, have never obeyed any liturgical authority and have done so with impunity. Actually, more to the point, uh, uh, liberal disobedience uh, and disregard for liturgical norms has, uh, he says, quote, most often resulted not only in no punishment, but in having their disobedience enshrined in law. Now, I took a look at a Pew Research poll about Traditionis Custodes, and it said that 65% of Catholics have heard nothing at all about Traditionis Custodes. You know, these are what uh, Terry and Jesse refer to as low-information Catholics. Now, and it's scary how they remain such a large majority in the church. Um, but, you know, liberals have taken the occasion to say, see, nobody cares about the traditional Latin mess. 65% of Catholics are fine with the Novus Ordo exclusively. See, but that's not what the poll showed. You have to you know, look at the numbers. The poll showed that 65% of Catholics, quote-unquote, are unaware of the latest attack on tradition. Okay? They're, they're not, they're not uh, uh, indifferent. They're ignorant. And what about the remaining 35%? You know, what about Catholics who have at least heard of Traditionis Custodius? What's their reaction? Well, 14%, they have no opinion at all. Or, or decline to answer, right? 14% of the remaining 35 of those who actually have heard about it are indifferent, okay? Which leaves just 21%, which I think, not coincidentally, is about the same percentage of Catholics who regularly go to Sunday Mass, right? The 21% represents Catholics who actually practice their faith, right? And so the people that actually go to Mass on Sunday are split with 9% approving of Traditionis Custodis and 12% disapproving. So what the poll tells us is that close to two-thirds of Catholics who actually practice their faith, okay, a clear majority, disapprove of Traditionis Custodis and the you know, restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass. Okay, here's a quote from the report. Catholics who attend Mass weekly are both more likely to be aware of the new restrictions and more inclined to oppose them than Catholics who attend less frequently. And, among Catholics with an opinion about the new rules, weekly Mass-goers and Catholic Republicans express higher levels of disapproval than those who do not go to Mass regularly and Catholic Democrats. Well, surprise, surprise. The same poll showed that 8 in 10 Catholics have a favorable view of Pope Francis. You know, but once again, look at this, that it's the 80 to 20 ratio. It's pretty much the same percentage of Catholics who rarely or never meet their Sunday obligation. That's the 80% versus the 
versus the 20% who go to Mass regularly. You know, now it seems that, uh, that most bishops are taking a wait-and-see attitude, and they're doing nothing at all about traditionalis custodis, nothing at all about the Pope's call uh, to forbid the, the celebration of the traditional Mass at parish churches. You know, but, but and some bishops are going beyond what the Pope has called for. I'm not only forbidding the traditional Latin Mass, but even forbidding or, or, or restricting traditional practices in the celebration of the Novus Ordo, which is, I would argue, beyond their comp- uh, competence. And furthermore, as we can see from the, from the uh, poll, Catholics in the pew don't like it. But what is there to do? I mean, that's always the question, isn't it? I mean, that's the real issue. As Father Stravinsky said, conservative or traditional Catholics, by their very nature, are given to obey their superiors in the church, of course. Good Catholics obey the Pope. Good Catholics listen to their bishop. So how do these good Catholics justify resisting their novel teaching? You know, when has it ever been traditional to disobey the Pope? And it seems like a catch-22, but if you go back to Father Stravinsky in his article disobey and you'll get your way, he reminds us of a couple of traditional canonical maxims. First, custom is the best interpreter of law. Now, in this context, that would mean that it's perfectly reasonable to disobey the Pope and the bishops because the custom, the established custom of the past 50 years, that is, ever since Vatican II, has been that liturgical disobedience is generally rewarded. Second, and more serious, is the maxim, I have no obligation to obey what you have no right to command. St. Thomas Aquinas says, an unjust law is no law. And since Benedict XVI, the immediate predecessor of the current pope, taught in continuity with uh, Pope St. Pius V's quo primum, that what is, was sacred for previous generations remains sacred, and that the traditional Mass cannot be considered even harmful, much less entirely forbidden. You know, it's Pope Francis and Archbishop Roach and the others who are themselves being disobedient to the established magisterium of the Church. The question remains, by defending disobedience to Church officials, in some cases, am I not encouraging confusion and disorder in the Church? I mean, that's, that's the tension. But I would respectfully reply that the modernists are the ones who are causing disorder and confusion by ignoring sacred tradition and defying the perennial magisterium. You know, t- to the point that 80% of Catholics don't practice their faith. St. Thomas answered the, the question this way. He says, where there is approximate danger to the faith, prelates must be rebuked, even publicly, by their subjects. Thus, St. Paul, who was subject to St. Peter, rebuked him publicly. And that, my friends, is no nonsense. Now, as I mentioned before, last week on the, uh, the Feast of the Presentation slash Purification, I was too focused on the fact that it's uh, also the feast day of Our Lady of Good Success to, to pay attention to what was coming out of the Vatican. And the message of Our Lady of Good Success is one of a marvelous restoration of the traditions of the Church after the crisis of faith and morals uh, of the 20th century. Now, unfortunately, it was on, again, this very feast day that Pope Francis decided to repeat his disdain for the restoration of the Church. He said, and I quote, The temptation today is to go back and conserve traditions, 
but he says, with rigidity. Rigidity is a perversion. Every form of rigidity, or behind every form of rigidity, lies grave problems. No returning to the past. No rigidity. Let us open our eyes. Okay? And this is in line with remarks that he made in September of 2021 uh, to the same Council of European Churches, of which he made Cardinal Hollerick the head, when he said, to make the church beautiful and welcoming, we need to look together to the future, not to restore the past. Restoring the past will kill us. It will kill everyone. All right. Going to have a little something to say about his remarks in the context of the weeds and the wheat and uh, Our Lady is co-redemptrix. When we return with more No-Nonsense Catholics right after this. And welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Good to have you along with us. Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Talking about uh, remarks that Pope Francis made last week on the Feast of the Presentation, that the temptation today is to go back and conserve traditions, but with rigidity. Rigidity is a perversion. Behind every form of rigidity lies grave problems. No returning to the past. No rigidity, he says. And it's funny, uh, um, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski reacted on Facebook. He said, um, the temptation today is to go back and conserve traditions. He said, oh, yes, Holy Father, the modern world, the modern church are evidently experiencing a huge temptation to go back to tradition. And then he went on to say that he was reminded of uh, how Pope Francis uh, at one time talked about how confessors shouldn't be so strict, uh, you know, and too, too strict about sins, and they shouldn't turn the confessional into a torture chamber. He says, as if most Catholics are even going to confession, all right, and as if most confessors are, are really too strict. You know, he said, one has the impression that the Pope is living several decades ago in his mind. And that's actually something I've been talking about for years. It's a, it is one of the bizarre contradictions of liberalism that they are stuck in the past, you know, they're always talking about the future, but they continue to act as if it was the 1970s. You know, they're still fighting against these, these straw men from the 1950s. You know, look at Barack Obama, for example. You know, the first black man to be elected president maintained that our big problem in the United States was racial discrimination. You know, I recall uh, commenting during his first term that um, Obama was going to have to come to terms with the fact that he can no longer stick it to the man because he is the man. You know, liberals are the man, or the woman in this case, uh, uh, or, in, you know, in, in some cases, uh, uh, remember Hillary Clinton, right? During her campaign in, uh, against Trump, she said that our big problem is the glass ceiling that keeps women from rising to high positions. It's like, okay, this is from a woman who was the senator of New York, who was secretary of state of the United States of America, Okay. He thinks that women are still being treated like, you know, uh, like the secretarial pool in an episode of Mad Men. Okay. And, and in a similar manner, here you've got Pope Francis presiding over a church that is floundering in a sea of liturgical abuse and, and theological dissent and, and moral relativism, telling us that the problem is that bishops and priests are too strict, right? That, that lay Catholics, 80% of whom can't even be bothered to go to Sunday Mass, remember, it, it, the problem is that they're tempted to become traditional. 
um, you know, he needs to take his own advice and open his eyes. Obviously, his, his claim, when he says restoring the past will kill us all, that is, you know, uh, wildly hyperbolic. At least I hope he means it that way. But the fact that he chose February 2nd to double down against the restoration of the church did seem significant to me. Because, you know, the official title of Our Lady of Good Success in Quito is La Nuestra Señora del Buen Suceso de la Purificación. Now, in Spanish, Buen Suceso means good event or, or great event. So this would translate literally as Our Lady of the Good Event of the Purification. And, and that, that good or great event in her title refers directly to the presentation of the child Jesus in the temple, in which Jesus was first uh, offered to God by the hands of the Blessed Virgin, foreshadowing his self-offering on the cross and revealing Mary's role as co-redemptrix. In, in 2017, the sisters, Conception of Sisters of the Royal Convent of the Immaculate Conception, where Our Lady of Good uh, Success appeared 400 years ago, wrote a letter in, the, in which they said, quote, Mary's role as co-redemptrix did not begin at the foot of the cross, but even at the moment of the presentation, she already acts in this capacity. Moreover, the offering of her divine Son is accompanied with the complete offering of herself. Christ the Redeemer offering himself, the co-redemptrix, Virgin Mother of God offering Christ, the most blessed Virgin completely offering herself. This was the greatest sacrifice to ever take place in the temple. And that's a beautiful sentiment. And that term, co-redemptrix, refers to the clearly subordinate, but also essential participation by the Blessed Virgin Mary in the redemption. Notably that she gave free consent to give her life to the Redeemer, right? She said yes to the angel Gabriel, which meant sharing uh, our Lord's life and his suffering and his death, which were redemptive for the world. And now the concept of her essential participation in our redemption goes back to the early church fathers, really all the way back to, to Scripture, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, you know, the Proto-Evangelion, and then, and then the story of the Annunciation in, in Luke chapter 1. So the use of that term, co-redemptrix, right? It's the feminine of co-redeemer. Uh, it's an organic development in Mariology. goes at least back to the Middle Ages. Uh, you, you can find it in St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who is a doctor of the Church, who is honored with the title Last of the Fathers because of his scriptural insight. Uh, the term co-redemptrix is found in the writings of popes and saints and doctors and mystics and martyrs, including modern popes like Leo XIII and, and Pius XI and St. John Paul II, for that matter, who used the term at least seven times in, in his writings and public uh, uh, orations. So Bernard of Clairvaux goes so far as to say that Jesus wants all of his gifts to come through the hands of Mary which gives rise to the title of uh, Mary as Mediatrix of all graces. Right, now before we go any further, I think it's important to understand what co-redemptrix does not mean. It does not mean that uh, Mary's equal with Christ. It does not mean that she is a goddess. It does not mean that she's, uh, you know, some kind of fourth person of the Blessed Trinity, right? That's a patently false presentation or interpretation, and the problem stems from, uh, I think, from the fact that in modern English, the prefix co can mean equal to, as in a co-owner, for example. But that's not the case in Latin. 
Dr. Mark Miravalle explains it well. He said, the prefix co does not mean equal, but comes from the Latin word cum, which means with. The title of co-redemptrix applied to the mother of Jesus never places Mary on a level of equality with Jesus Christ, the divine Lord of all, in the saving process of humanity's redemption. Rather, it denotes Mary's singular and unique sharing with her son in the saving work of redemption for the human family. The mother of Jesus participates in the redemptive work of her son, who alone could reconcile humanity with the Father in his glorious divinity and humanity, unquote. So, in hopes of clearing up any misconceptions over the proper understanding of the doctrine of co-redemptrix, it was widely thought and discussed that uh, at Vatican II that they would infallibly proclaim Mary's role as co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces as a fifth Marian dogma. Now, we know that didn't happen. And so a group of prominent theologians petitioned St. John Paul II to personally proclaim the fifth Marian dogma. And if he had any intention of proclaiming the dogma, he died before that happened. But back to Pope Francis, okay? Uh, in, in December of 2019, during Mass at St. Peter's Basilica in honor of Our Lady of Guadalupe, he called the doctrine of Mary as co-redemptric foolishness. And then last March, uh, he made the bold statement, the Virgin Mary is not co-redemptrix with Christ. And he went on, he, he entrusted the entire church and all the faithful to Mary. And then looking away from his prepared statement, you know, as he's entrusting the church to Mary, he, he says, but as a mother, not as a goddess, not as a co-redemptrix, as a mother. And once again, we see the, the Pope employing a straw man. You know, the, the obviously false interpretation that referring to Mary as co-redemptrix means that she's a goddess. You know, if he's looking for foolishness, he found it. And it's, it's difficult for me to understand, you know, why he would be, you know, uh, why he would want to do this. And how different it is from Pope St. John Paul II, who often spoke of Mary as co-redemptrix, you know, simply using terminology that was employed in the liturgy and by the saints and theologians, at least since the Middle Ages, as well as by the papal magisterium. <clears throat> including his own. I mean, you know, uh, as recently as the pontificate of Pope St. Pius X, the Holy See gave approval to three prayers invoking Mary as co-redemptrix. Pope Pius XI didn't hesitate to refer to her by that title. So I give the last word on this to a prayer from St. John Paul II. May Mary, our protectress, the co-redemptrix, to whom we offer our prayer with great outpouring, Make our desire generously correspond to the desire of the Redeemer. Amen. Our Lady, co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces, pray for us. And speaking of Our Lady, I said last week that, uh, you know, I, I talked about how when the Immaculate Conception appeared here in the 1950s, here in the United States, uh, and it's, uh, you know, approved... Uh, Apparition. This apparition has been approved for private devotion by the competent authority of the church here in the United States of America. That, uh, you know, Our Lady of America desires that Catholic Americans would imitate her virtues, especially her purity and the virtues of the Holy Family. And that talking about purity is not just about uh, chastity, but about remaining in a state of grace 
and showing devotion to the indwelling presence of God. Right? God, we know God dwells in the soul when we are in a state of grace. That's what being in a state of grace is about. And we also often talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But we also know theologically that whenever any person of the Holy Spirit acts, all of the persons of the Holy Spirit are involved. That is why Mary comes and she uses that terminology, the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. That, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost um, are present in our souls when we're in a state of grace and that we need to be, to, uh, to be devoted to the Holy Trinity and especially to this, to this indwelling. And, you know, I, many of us, myself included, are not mystics, <laughs> you know, and we need a practical way to do this. And I mentioned last week that uh, the way to understand this is to be found in The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. So when we come back, we are going to talk about interior conversation and the indwelling of the Holy Trinity and how we, as common believers, can be dedicated, devoted to the indwelling of the Holy Ghost and the Holy, uh, the Holy Trinity, rather, uh, when we return. With lots more right after this. Okay, welcome back. Uh, great to have you with us at Virgin uh, Most Powerful Radio, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold, and talking about interior conversation from the imitation of Christ. You know, I, um, I've often talked about this, that, that most people have what's called an, an inner monologue. That's this, this kind of running commentary about what's going on, you know, in your life when, when you're, uh, you know, in your waking moments. And that there's a movie called Lady Hawk from the 1980s, which is actually based on an authentic medieval legend, but features a character played by Matthew Broderick, whose uh, inner monologue is spoken out loud. But his inner monologue, he's not talking to himself throughout the film. He's talking to God. And that was, you know, um, common in the Middle Ages. This is how to follow uh, St. Paul's admission to pray always, that your, your inner monologue becomes an inner dialogue with God, what uh, Thomas Akempis calls interior conversation. Uh, the, the second book of The Imitation of Christ is called Considerations for Leading an Interior Life. And the very first chapter, which we're going to talk about today, is on interior conversation. Then the third book is filled with, his, with examples of his interior conversation, presented as a dialogue between Christ and, and a disciple, between Christ and a devout soul, in this case, Thomas Akempis. But the first chapter of book two is called On Interior Conversation, and it begins with um, a verse from Luke 17, chapter 21, when, wherein our Lord says, the kingdom of God is among you, or the kingdom of God is in your midst, or as the Latin Vulgate would have it, and uh, as it's translated into English in the Douay Reims, the kingdom of God is within you. And this, uh, now we're getting to uh, talking about the indwelling of the Holy Trinity when you are in a state of grace, and devotion to that indwelling as uh, we are admonished to practice as American Catholics by Our Lady herself, the Immaculate Conception who appeared um, in the United States in the 1950s. And Akempis tells us the only way that your soul will find rest is to turn to God, to turn to him with your whole heart and to abandon the world, that we must learn to, 
uh, detach ourselves from exterior things and give our attention to the inner things. Then, he says, then you will see the kingdom of God come within you. And then he goes on to quote uh, St. Paul from Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God means peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and that that is denied to the wicked. Our Lord will visit the devout, he says, with his consolations if they make room for him in the depths of their hearts. That is where he desires to be, and he will bring them many graces and much peace and the sublime, sublime intimacy of his presence. So we have that indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity when we are in a state of grace. We need to detach ourselves from the world and learn to recognize that inner presence. And that's how the kingdom of God is within us. So he says, lose no time, faithful soul, in preparing your heart to meet Christ the Beloved, so that he may come and live with you. And then he goes to Scripture again. Does he not say, and this is an allusion to John 14, uh, 23, whoever loves me will keep my word, and my uh, and he says that the Father and he, we will come to him and make our abode with him. So not only the Holy Spirit, but the Father and the Son. He says, so make room for him, make room for God in your heart and shut out all others. If you have Christ, he says, you are rich indeed, for only he can fulfill all your needs. He will be your provider and defender and your faithful helper in every need so that you need not trust any other. And this is an important point of, of uh, Thomas Akempis' spirituality, to rely entirely upon God. He says, how quickly people change, how quickly they, they fail us, but Christ abides forever. And that's John twelve thirty four. Christ remains at our side until the end. So he says, you're not supposed to place any confidence in mortal men. You know, no matter helpful, no matter how helpful other people are, no matter how dear to this they are, the fact is that we are all of us frail. And so he says, neither should you be downcast if one day uh, a person's on your side and the next day they're against you. He says, because humans change like the wind. Therefore, you put your complete trust in God who doesn't change. You let him be the center of your love and the object of your, of your filial fear, if you will, right? your, your respect and awe. He will answer for you and he will do what he sees best for you. What are you, he says, but an alien and a pilgrim? That's the thing about detachment from the world is that we, you know, we're meant for heaven. And he says, you're, you're, you're an alien and a pilgrim. And so only if you're united with Christ will you have rest. And he says, why do you look to have rest on earth when it's not your true home? Because your, your true home is in heaven. And all earthly things are transitory, and that includes you as well. So he says, do not cling to them. Don't become enmeshed or, or ensnared in them and be destroyed. Direct your thoughts to God and all your prayer to Christ continually. There's that inner dialogue, this inner, con inner conversation, as he calls it. Now, he gets to the point that I was making, the, the question I was asking. He says, you know, wh what if you're not? I'm not a mystic. He says, what, what, what if you're unable to contemplate the Godhead? He says, if you're unable to contemplate the Godhead, then let your thoughts dwell on the passion of Christ, finding in his sacred wounds a home. This is the great uh, spirituality of the Middle Ages. This is, I would argue, the great spirituality of virtually all the saints. 
their devotion to the passion of Christ. Yes, the abstract nature of the Trinity is purely, uh, you know, is this this spiritual, uh, uh, supernatural mystery that can be beyond the intellect um, of the average person. But we can all appreciate with gratitude the sacrifice that Christ made for us, the suffering that he endured for my sake and for yours. He says, fly to the wounds of Christ, and in them you will find comfort in all your troubles. You will not care if others despise you, and you will easily bear up under their criticism. Notice how that's the first place he goes when he talks about our suffering, is the ridicule, the humiliation that was heaped on Christ and that is heaped on those who follow him and who believe in him. When our Lord lived on earth, he was looked down on, he says, and and in the hour of his greatest need, he was abandoned by his friends and left to bear insults and shame alone. He says, how can you dare to complain when Christ was so willing to suffer and be despised? Do you expect everyone to be your friend and patron when Christ was surrounded by enemies and slanderers? I remember what we said about the weeds and the wheat. That God doesn't exterminate all of the wicked because their presence in this veil of tears helps the just and the righteous to grow in sanctification and to become more holy, to practice the virtues. If all goes well with you on earth, he says, how can you expect to be crowned in heaven for a patience you never practiced? How can you be Christ's friend if you will not be opposed? Therefore, you must suffer with Christ and for Christ if you want to reign with him. And he says, if once you had entered into the interior of Jesus and there tasted a little of his ardent love, you would not consider your own convenience or inconvenience, but would even rejoice over insults done to you. For love of Jesus would urge you to despise yourself. This is, we talk about the fear of God. The fear of God is, is primarily consists in understanding the difference between me and God. And, and, it's, and it is a vast and infinite difference between the creator and the creation, you know? And, and so it becomes easy to love God when you understand who he is in relation to who you are. And, and so Thomas Akempis says, those who love Jesus, who love the truth, can lead an interior life that's free from unruly affections and can turn to God at will and lift themselves up in spirit and repose with Christ uh, repose in Christ with joy. Those, uh, or they are wise, he says, who observe things as they are and not by what is said about them or by the value put on them, for they are taught by God and not by men. This, you know, Thomas Akemis, there's a number of places where he talks about, you know, blessed are those who are taught by the truth itself, who are taught by God. And this is what he's talking about. To observe things the way they are. To live, you know, if I, people are always telling me about the real world, and I tell you, well, to live in reality has to include your relationship with Christ. Because he is reality. God said to Moses, I am. <laughs> There's no reality apart from him. So those who can raise their mind to God, back to a campus, says, with little regard to outward things, do not need to look for a place or a time to pray or to do good deeds. 
for interior persons not being wholly occupied with things of the sense, right, not being concerned with uh, uh, TV and Facebook and so forth, can easily fix their minds on God. Their exterior work is no obstacle, nor is any necessary employment. They will apply themselves to each in turn and refer all to the will of God. Yes, so as St. Paul said in, in our readings from earlier today, whatsoever you do in word or in work, do all in the name of Jesus. There's nothing, there's nothing that you can do that should get in the way you know, of, of your relationship with him and even your, your uh, ongoing conversation with him. Thomas Akempis says, if your soul is well disposed and disciplined, you will not be surprised or disturbed by the perverse conduct of others. This, this indwelling of the Holy Trinity, being keeping yourself disciplined, uh, practicing virtue, remaining in conversation with God, when the Pope says something egregious, when a cardinal uh, says something heretical and, and, and faces no comeuppance, when 80% of Catholics don't go to church and, and missing Mass through their own fault and not receiving communion once a year and not receiving worthily, not going to confession, you understand those people have excommunicated themselves. They have, they have uh, taken on that, that punishment of, of, of late sentia excommunications. But you, if you're well-disposed and disciplined, you won't be dis- disturbed or surprised, and you will not be hindered or distracted because you won't be taken up with earthly matters. This is why... Our Lady wants us to be devoted to the indwelling of the Holy Trinity because in that we find peace and joy now, right now. That our practice of virtue and our conversation with God is worthwhile now and for eternity. And that's no nonsense. So great to have you uh, with us this week. We're going to be back next time. Do it all again. Back to our ongoing conversation of will the real Vatican II please stand up? We're going to take a look at uh, how some of the teachings of Vatican II have really been misrepresented. And uh, maybe that those documents don't think, uh, don't say what you think they do. All that more next time. Till then, may God richly bless you and your family.